we thank you for this morning that you've given us. We thank you for the opportunity to come into your presence as a body of believers to worship you, to fellowship together, Lord, to um, build one another up and encourage one another with songs and hymns and spiritual songs like you've exhorted us to. Father, through the preaching of your word, I pray that your Holy Spirit would take um, your message for us, take it from our ears down to our hearts, Lord, apply them to our hearts, give us the boldness and confidence to be not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Father, we just trust you with these things this morning. We trust in your goodness and your sovereignty as we explore how to live as Christians in a difficult time. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Uh, morning. My name's Rob. Uh, for those of you who uh, don't know me, I've had the honor and privilege of uh, serving as one of the pastors here at the Gathering Church for a few years. Um, in February, my wife Cass and I went down to the Summit Church in Raleigh, North Carolina uh, to prepare and train to be church planters. Um, and it's really a joy for us every time we get to visit you. Um, our hearts long to be with you. You, um, you truly are our church family, and uh, that's our, 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 our kids included. Uh, we, we think of you frequently in our prayers. Just the other day, um, Emma was uh, praying, as she's beginning to do, uh, and thanking God for uh, many of your children by name, uh, just as she's recounted uh, her time here. And uh, so we, we thank you for having us back with you. Um, if you've been watching the news lately, there's a, a big event coming up this Tuesday, uh, it's not uh, National Cappuccino Day, though that is true. Uh, the event that I'm speaking of is the presidential election. Um, and if you're like me, uh, you've had a lot of questions surrounding the election, particularly this election uh, in particular. Questions like, how should I vote? Should I even vote at all? Uh, when is Jesus going to come back? Uh, that's been my question that's been on my heart. Uh, and these are all good questions. And I thought it appropriate to address some of the issues surrounding the election this morning. Uh, but I'm not here to tell you how to vote as a Christian on November 8th. There's a bunch of resources out there. A quick Google search can turn up all sorts of things. Um, and I'm sure you've seen uh, on your Facebook feeds everybody's opinion flying by. I'm not here to tell you how to vote on November 8th. What I'm here to tell you and where I want to focus our attention this morning is how to live as a Christian honoring God when we get up on November 9th. So if you have a Bible with you, turn uh, to Romans 13. That's where we're going to be this morning. And this morning we're going to talk about authority. Specifically, we're going to be talking about everybody's favorite topic, submitting to authority. Anybody here just love submitting to authority? I do not. All right, let's be honest. We're Americans. It's in our DNA to rebel against authority. But what I'm going to show you this morning is that God is glorified and we are blessed in how we submit to authority. Now, before we get to it, we need to lay a, a, a brief foundation uh, because in order to believe and obey God's word uh, in this area of our lives requires three things. Okay, so we're going to assume three things this morning. First, we're going to assume that we believe that God is our ultimate authority. Second, we're going to believe that scripture is God's words. And third, we're going to assume that if God is our highest authority, and if his words have authority over our lives, then we are therefore morally obligated to obey them. All right, now that's a starting point. 
And if you don't agree with those things, these are things that we can work through together after service. But that's our starting point. That's going to be our foundation. Because all of authority we're going to find out comes from God. And so therefore, we need to explore uh, our relationship to him and his authority as we explore our relationship to governing authorities. So let's read together. Romans 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Now, you don't even need to wait until the end of the sermon to get your application this morning. We're giving it to you right up front and center. Be subject to governing authorities. Thus saith the Lord. Um, And if it were this easy, I could just close up my Bible and go home, right? Because we would check off that box. But living this out is more complicated. And we're going to spend the rest of our time together this morning unpacking what this looks like. So, Verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God's wrath, or sorry, he is a servant of God, an avenger, carries out God's wrath on the evildoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed. Respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. All right, let's break that down. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. In God's created order, he has ordained certain institutions that have authority over you and to whom you are accountable. Now, be subject to does not mean have blind obedience to. Okay, we're going we're gonna to address that. But there are different authorities that God has ordained for you to whom you're accountable. First, we have authorities in the home, authorities in the workplace. But Paul has in mind here primarily civil government in this passage. And so here we have a biblical command to be subject to our civil government. Now, given current events, that raises a lot of questions. Right? You might be thinking... How in the world can Paul say this? Clearly, Paul didn't have the 2016 presidential campaign in mind. But Paul was writing to Christians in first century Rome. Okay? Rome, in a lot of ways, was a lot like the modern-day United States. Rome was an influential political center uh, led by a series of corrupt and unashamedly anti-Christian rulers. Uh, compared to the rest of the world, Rome was affluent, but it had a mixed and diverse social class being made up of people ranging from slaves to the working class to the very wealthy. Uh, Rome's culture was marked by sensuality, decadence, and immorality. Um, Rome was ethnically and religiously diverse. Everyone had their own gods, they worshipped their own gods, and they tolerated the gods of others so long as you got along and didn't impose your beliefs on anybody. Sounds a lot like the modern-day United States. So when you look at it, Rome really isn't uh, that much different, but there are some key differences. See, shortly before Paul wrote this letter to the believers at Rome, Jewish Christians had been banned from the city of Rome uh, by the emperor Claudius for disrupting the social order and refusing to bow down to the emperor and to pagan gods. Uh, a A few years later, they were allowed to return by Emperor Nero, 
who tolerated Christians uh, for some time, but soon began intensely persecuting them. And I don't mean he asked them to bake a cake. He threw them to the dogs, covered them in the equivalent of gasoline, set them on fire for light for his garden. Okay? So don't get me wrong. I am nervous for the, uh, the future of the American church. And I believe that we are going to see a time in our generation where civil disobedience will be required, but we are not experiencing anything remotely close to what believers in Paul's day in the first century uh, in Rome were experiencing. So, if believers in Rome could submit to the governing authorities of their days, 21st century American believers can submit to the governing authorities of ours. So what we need to discover then is what does being subject look like And how do believers find the power to be subject to an authority in a culture that is growing increasingly hostile toward Christians? Um, And here's the answer that we find in God's word this morning. Christians joyfully subject themselves to authority because they trust the highest authority. Christians joyfully subject themselves to authority because they trust the highest authority. See, part of the reason that we have trouble subjecting ourselves to human authorities is because we have uh, too big a view of what human authorities can do and too small a view of what our God can do. Simply put, we forget who's in charge, right? Notice that Paul here doesn't focus on the atrocities of the Roman government. He doesn't write a blog post about crooked Claudius or nasty Nero. Okay, he focuses his attention on, and he directs his reader's attention to, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, who rules and reigns over all authorities on heaven and on earth. See, Paul knows that the power to submit to authority comes not from evoking fear of man, but through seeing God for who he is and putting civil authorities in their rightful place before him. He tells us where authority comes from. He tells us what government is designed to do. And so let's look at those things. First, Christians joyfully subject themselves to authority because they trust in God's sovereignty. Look at verses 1 through 3. There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. All human authority is delegated from the one who has ultimate authority, and that's Jesus Christ. Jesus says in Matthew 28, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Congress wouldn't exist if God hadn't created it. The presidency wouldn't exist if God hadn't ordained it. Judges and state legislatures and magistrates wouldn't exist if God hadn't put them in place. What's more, God ordains not only the institutions of power, but the very people who fill them, and it is from God that they get their authority. Um, Daniel 2.21, which we read for our call to worship, says that God changes times and seasons. God removes kings and sets up kings. Proverbs 8, verses 15 and 16 say, By the Lord kings reign, and rulers decree what is just. By the Lord princes rule, and nobles, and all who govern justly. See, God alone puts rulers in positions of authority. And listen, that means that God's not going to be surprised when the election is over on Tuesday night. Right? He's not going to be looking down from heaven and shaking his head because we didn't get his man or woman into office. He has already decided the outcome. He has already put them there. And so what we want to focus on is not um, who ends up in office, though that is an important thing to, to concern yourself with, but how you respond on Wednesday morning because how you respond on Wednesday morning, whether your candidate wins or loses, will reveal a lot about what you believe about God and his sovereignty. 
See, there are things that we are commanded to do regardless of who ends up in office. Pray for our leaders, 1 Timothy 2. Show honor to our leaders, 1 Peter 2. But we do so in light of God's sovereignty over the nations, trusting his promises that he will work all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Now, if our authority that exists is ordained by God himself, that means that resisting the authority that he has appointed is rebelling against God himself. It says as much in verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Like a friend of mine says, this simply means that my daughter has never been grounded uh, for making her bed. There has never been a time where you've been pulled over for doing the speed limit. A police officer has never pulled you over and come to the window and said, is there some reason that you're not in a hurry tonight? Right? Those things just don't happen. But when you refuse to subject yourself to civil authority, you're refusing to subject yourself to God. And those who refuse to subject themselves to the governing authorities will be held accountable. Paul says in verse 4, If you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. Verse 5, He is an avenger who carries out God's wrath of the wrongdoer. There is an immediate and tangible consequence to refusing to submit to authority. Right? If you uh, refuse to obey the speed limit, you will likely get a ticket. If you don't pay that ticket, you will likely end up in jail, right? You can't pull the freedom in Christ card. That's not persecution. That's getting what you deserve. And so we submit to the government's authority because we know that it has been given by God. Point two, Christians joyfully subject themselves to authority because they trust in God's goodness. Look at verses four through six. For For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath of the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but for the sake of conscience. Uh, For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. That is the goodness that God is doing. So God ordains governments for the good of people under their authority. Now I know, not all governments do this, and we're going to get there, I promise. Um, But bear with me. God's design for civil authorities is the flourishing of the people under them. That includes Christians and non-Christians alike. Governments are a means of God's common grace, which is the grace that he has for all people. And Christians specifically, because they are one with Christ in both his exaltation and his suffering, must sometimes sacrifice that, is, that which is in their, their own self-interest for the good and flourishing of others. So that begs the question then, what is good? Because how you answer this question will affect both your theology and your political position. Because on one hand, as Christians, we know that the best possible thing for anyone, regardless of their situation, is to know Jesus. And without Jesus, there is nothing else. But on the other hand, there are people with real and tangible needs now, regardless of um, where they stand with Christ. Uh, One in eight Americans doesn't have enough to eat. Uh, On any given night, there are more than half a million people experiencing homelessness. Between 600 and 800,000 people are trafficked across the U.S. border for sex trade every year. 80% of them are women. 
and half of them are children. And so on one hand, you don't walk up to a hungry child and give them a Bible and say, Jesus loves you, and walk off without meeting the physical need. But on the other hand, as one pastor puts it, making people comfortable here for an eternity in hell is an ignorant and empty exercise. Right? So we need to look at both the spiritual health and the physical health. So what role then does government play as it pertains to doing good? And this is where some Christians, I believe, confuse the role of government and the role of the church. Some of my brothers and sisters on the political right would say that the government should be concerned primarily with preserving moral fabric of our nation and addressing, the moral, uh, and addressing social issues such as poverty and homelessness falls under the purview of the church and believers' personal responsibility. Some of my brothers and sisters on the political left would say that the government has no business legislating morality and that the government should be primarily concerned with providing for the poor and meeting physical needs. I believe both missed the mark. I believe that the answer lies not on either end of the extremes of the, on the spectrum, but somewhere in what theologian Robertson McQuilkin calls the center of biblical tension. That is, if you study the whole of Scripture, you will find a number of principles that hold the responsibility of particular governments and the responsibility of church in tension. You will find a number of principles that, that look at face value to conflict or compete with one another, and we as believers need to navigate that tension. But rather than putting in the hard work to navigate that tension and develop a nuanced view of what the church and what the government should do and how they share responsibility, particularly in a secular culture, we pick one principle as an absolute and believe and behave that if that's the only thing that scripture has to say about the issue. As uh, McQuilkin puts it, it seems easier to uh, go to a consistent extreme than to stay at the center. So I believe that both the government and the church have a responsibility to uphold the moral values that are consistent with God's character. We see that in God's word. And I also believe that both the government and the church have a responsibility to minister to the poor, the marginalized, and the disadvantaged. See, Paul uh, says so right here in verse 6. Because of this, you also pay taxes. Why? For the authorities are the ministers of God attending to this very thing. And this is just my personal opinion. I lean conservative, uh, particularly on moral issues, but tend to uh, agree with my politically liberal brothers and sisters who can uh, criticize political, political conservatives um, when they say that we don't do enough to create public policy that ministers to those in need. Like, as the government has a, a platform to minister to a lot of these felt needs. Uh, my pastor, J.D. Greer, uh, says that there are eight issues to consider in every election. Uh, you can read these in detail on his blog. I've got a link in my transcript, which we'll put on the website, um, but I'll list a few here. Uh, protection of the innocent. As believers, we need to be considering the protection of the innocent. This includes, but is not limited to, babies in their mother's wombs. Right? One valid criticism that I hear from those who oppose the uh, pro-life movement politically as it exists today is that pro-life goes beyond the womb, right? It extends to all life and all people who are oppressed and disadvantaged and that the pro-life movement needs to be uh, more active as a matter of public policy to support mothers and in crisis pregnancies and their children uh, both before and after delivery. And so the criticism that I've received as a pro-life advocate is, are you pro-life or are you anti-abortion? That's something I've need to, needed to reflect on, particularly as I explore how to uh, engage politically as a believer. 
Um, protection of the innocent also applies to issues of racial injustice that we're experiencing as a nation. Um, one area where the American church, particularly believers who, like me, lean conservative, has failed is in this area of racial justice because most of us, uh, particularly if you've grown up in Ash County, are so far removed from our African-American brothers and sisters that we have no framework on how to respond. The church, um, in the day that we experience Jesus face-to-face, will be a, a diverse body of believers of all races and all ethnicities. And so we have a, a duty as, as believers to, uh, to uh, seek out our brothers who are of different races and to seek to understand them and support them. And so we need to consider these things as we uh, look at political engagement. Uh, we also need to look at preservation of religious liberty, right? Issues of, uh, regarding gender and sexuality are already impacting Christians' freedom to speak out against what we believe is unrighteousness. J.D. points out that uh, this election will play a significant role in whether or not churches are allowed to keep their tax-exempt status. In addition, uh, he lists the promotion of in- individual responsibility uh, in providing for those in need, issues of liberty and justice for all, recognition of the divine order of marriage and sexuality, issues regarding war, uh, immigration uh, versus integration, and issues of character. Right, so if you want to read more about these issues, I'll post the uh, sermon transcript. There will be a link in there. Um, but we see that governing authorities are instruments of God's mercy, regardless of whether there's Christians in office. The authorities themselves are ordained by God to be instruments of his mercy. I told you I wasn't going to tell you how to vote, uh, but there's something to consider as you go to the polls on Tuesday, and that is uh, how do the candidates who you plan to vote for in all offices fit the description of authorities as one appointed by God to be fair and just stewards of mercy for the marginalized and his wrath toward the wicked? As one of my brothers uh, in Christ shared uh, on his his church blog this week, um, what political uh, actions or inactions will benefit my neighbor most given the options that God has made available? And look, I get it. The options don't look good. Um, You might look at your ballot and say Nero looks like a pretty good choice right now. But as you consider how to best love your neighbor with your vote, consider these three options. One, you can abstain. Uh, Some people will try to guilt you into voting. I agree with John Piper who said this weekend that the right to vote in America is not a binding duty for uh, Christians in every election. There are instances, particularly in areas of moral conscience, um, where abstaining is a legitimate option. If you do vote, you can vote for a third party. Again, you might be pressured to vote for a uh, primary party candidate with the argument that you're throwing your vote away. But I hold this to be a matter of conscience for the Christian as well. Or you could vote for a primary party candidate um, on the, uh, based on the effect that you believe that their policies will have on your neighbor. And there's good arguments for all three of these. And as difficult as it might be for you to understand, and trust me, I've had difficulty understanding Um, There are Christians, brothers and sisters, who have looked at the options and they've reached a different conclusion than you have, and they're going to cast a vote for a different candidate, possibly one with whom you vehemently disagree. So, all authorities are ordained by God, and they are ordained for the good of those who are subject to them. From these two truths, we learn two things about God. And if you believe these two things about God, it will transform the way that you trust him in this area. Here they are. One, God is sovereign. Two, God is good. 
And this is precisely why Christians are commanded, not asked, but commanded to subject themselves to civil authority. Christians joyfully subject themselves to authority because they trust in the highest authority. Now, obviously, this raises some questions. Okay? What about evil rulers? As R.C. Sproul, a theologian, puts it, when Paul says that the powers that be are ordained of God, he does not necessarily mean that the powers that be are approved of by God. God did not approve of the Roman government. God did not approve of the Holocaust. God did not approve of the reign of Stalin or any like them. But what we do know is that God uses wicked rulers to accomplish his purposes, that God, because he is sovereign and because he is good, allowed these events to take place for his glory among the nations. And we know that God is a just God, and that because he is just, he does not leave wickedness unpunished. So because they have been given authority from God, those in positions of authority are themselves accountable to God, and he promises in his word that wicked rulers will be judged. Isaiah 1, 23, Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, mighty one of Israel, ah, I will get my relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. Later in Isaiah, Isaiah 10, uh, God's word says this, Woe to those who enact evil statutes and those who constantly record unjust decisions. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, for we, all, we must all appear before the seat of judgment Christ. Uh, sorry, the judgment seat of Christ. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done. See, church, there is a day coming when all will be made right. right? Perfect justice will be administered once and for all. When those who suffer at the hand of unjust rulers will be vindicated, where the low will be exalted, Jesus says in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, church, Paul knew this. Paul knew that there's something greater going on in our world, something that is above us, something is beyond us, beyond our comprehension, that God is doing something in our world that we cannot understand, that the presidential election in America in 2016 is only a passing moment of time, and one day all of this will be forgotten. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be remembrance of later things yet to come. Ecclesiastes 1.11. Because in light of who God is and what he is doing and what is to come. This is just a moment in time. See, on that day when Jesus returns, all we will know is his goodness and his grace and all of the wickedness of the world will pass away and we will just be staring at Jesus. What about wicked rulers? The second question that comes to mind is when is civil disobedience justified? When can we disobey the authorities? Sproul again puts it this way. He says, even if Christians find themselves in the unenviable position of being under tyranny of of an unrighteous and unjust government, they still have a fundamental responsibility to render civil obedience. That's Paul's message here. Our fundamental responsibility is to render civil obedience. But what we need to acknowledge is that there are exceptions. Uh, John Calvin has a short book called The Institutes of Christian Religion. And in it, he describes something known as the doctrine of lesser magistrate, um, in which he makes the argument that there are very rare situations in which a wicked ruler becomes so bad 
that the positions of authority flip and it becomes the people's responsibility to rise up and overthrow the ruler. That's not what we're talking about here. Okay, that's not what we're talking about when we say civil disobedience. We are in Ash County. I know some of you brothers are just itching to start a revolution, but today's not the time. What we're talking about is personal expressions of civil disobedience, and there are situations in which civil disobedience is justified. Civil disobedience is justified in one of the following two situations. One, when the governing authorities prohibit that which is commanded by God. And two, when the uh, governing authorities command that which is prohibited by God. And there's scores of biblical examples of believers who, in specific situations, refuse to obey the authorities that were over them. We'll list a few. Uh, Acts 4, Peter and John are healing people in the temple in the name of Jesus. And in doing so, they're upsetting the uh, structure of power and control that the religious rulers maintained. And when the authorities command them to stop preaching the gospel, Peter and John say, Acts 4.19, whatever is right in the sight of God, or whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. Another example is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar had built an idol and commanded people to bow down to it, which was forbidden of God's people. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused. Uh, they got tossed to the furnace. They came out alive, and through their disobedience, um, uh, but they were disobeying Nebuchadnezzar through their obedience to the Lord. Nebuchadnezzar ends up praising the Most High God. A couple other examples. The Egyptian midwives who refused to kill the male Hebrew children in Exodus 2. Uh, the wise men who refused to report Jesus to Herod in Matthew 2. There's scores of examples of civil disobedience in the Bible. Some of those, while righteous, have had consequences at the hand of wicked, wicked rulers. So I know this bring, brings up uh, probably dozens more questions. What about the death penalty? What about war? What about taxpayer funding of abortion? Um, unfortunately, we don't have clear-cut answers to these questions. Believers are need to, as Paul writes in uh, chapter 12 of Romans, uh, by testing discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We have a resource made available to you from the last time we kind of touched on this topic back in 1 Peter that you can uh, kind of review some specific cases in which civil disobedience or submission might be warranted. Uh, so you can see Pastor Scott for that. Uh, but listen, the baseline, the baseline here, our starting point for the Christian life is subjection to the governing authorities. We need to bend over backwards in our subjection to the governing authorities. Um, in, in letters from a Birmingham jail, Martin Luther King explains that they tried to obey every law that they could and disobeyed peaceably only the ones that were religiously unjust. And so if everything becomes an excuse for civil disobedience for you, you're not in rebellion against authorities, you're in open re rebellion against God. And that's an area for you to repent. See, civil disobedience must be limited in scope and must be marked by submission generally uh, to the authorities and only engage in when we have serious and thoughtful disobedience uh, when we can no longer obey without sinning. So Christians joyfully subject themselves to authority because they trust in the highest authority. Where do you need to subject yourself to authority that God has ordained for you? Where, as Paul writes in verse 7, do you need to pay respect to whom respect is owed? Honor to whom honor is owed? See, these aren't just simple checklists that we can you know, change a couple of habits overnight and be right with this passage. 
we have in our hearts a spirit of rebellion that goes deep down to the idols of our souls. And as I shared with you at the beginning of our time this morning, we have trouble subjecting ourselves to human authorities because we have too large a view of what human authorities can do and too small a view of who God is and what he can do. And so the only way, the only way that we can be obedient to God's word in the area of submission to authority is if we view civil governments in their rightful place underneath God's sovereign authority. Let me leave you with a few words of encouragement. No matter what happens on October 8th, November 8th, I know, and you can trust, that on November 9th, that I am commanded to joyfully subject myself to the authorities that God has ordained because he is good and he is in control. No matter who sits in the Oval Office, I know who sits on a throne, ruling and reigning in power and authority over all heaven and all earth. My hope is not in human kings, but in a heavenly king. I trust not in a higher power, but in the highest power, the name above all names, the king of kings, the lord of lords, the firstborn of all creation, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, who was and is and is to come, the one to whom all authority on heaven and earth has been given, the one to whom every knee shall bow, and every tongue, all rulers, every nation, all ages, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He loves you, he cares for you, and his hand is upon you this morning and until you see him again. Church, be encouraging that this morning. Let's pray. Father, it's a difficult task that you've given us. to be subject to the authorities that you've ordained, even when we feel that they are unjust, even when we feel that they are unfair. Lord, you've given us as believers in a representative democracy, a share of that authority, that we um, have the ability to exercise our voice in selecting our leaders. Lord, give us the, um, the wisdom and discernment to make those decisions in light of you. Help us to love our neighbor by the way that we submit ourselves to authority. And Father, help us to trust you. Because if we're honest, our hearts often do not trust you in matters of politics. But Father, you are bigger than any election. You are bigger than any nation, any government. Lord, you created heaven and earth. You are the one from whom authority flows, and you are the one to whom the authorities are accountable. So, Father, we repent of our idols, of politics, of, um, and we put our hearts in you and our trust in you. God, we love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.